Over the last three weeks, uh, we have been looking at God's call to us to serve, forgive, and love others as we have been served, forgiven, and loved by God in Jesus Christ. Uh, This last message of the series on following Christ's lead really focuses on the key to the other three, on how we actually get from hearing and knowing what God requires of us to doing what God requires of us in these things. A, a dear brother said to me last week after, the, after that message that everything we've been talking about is great. He absolutely believes it, but it's so hard to actually do. Uh, based on the track record that, that many of us have had, trying to put these exceedingly important assignments from God into practice, it feels at times like uh, we're more likely to just keep doing things the way we've been doing them, to, uh, to serve in sort of a lukewarm way, to forgive begrudgingly and inconsistently, and to love uh, in a way that falls woefully short of the love that, that God has demonstrated toward us in Jesus Christ. But I want to say to you today that fortunately God does not intend for us to be weak ineffective instruments. He has given us an answer that tells us exactly what we need in order to move forward effectively as bearers of his character in our interactions with one another. People who are used by him powerfully to bless and to radically transform the lives of other people. Now, I don't say that lightly. Uh, I, I, I believe it very wholeheartedly. And I'll show you where all that comes from as we dig into this text. I'm gonna, we're gonna go verse by verse through this little passage that, that Tommy read this morning until we're finished. No, I'm kidding. <clears throat> it, this pass, I wanted him to read the whole thing because the context of it is, is, is very important. It's about submission in all kinds of different areas. Submission of um, of all of us to government uh, governmental authorities. Submission of servants to masters. Submission of wives to husbands. Uh, in a very real way, submission of husbands to wives in terms of subordinating their own self-interest, and ultimately submission of every one of us to every other one of us. Uh, and and right in the in the center of the passage. In, in terms of the idea behind the passage, is Jesus Christ. And we're going to really focus on the portion of the passage that focuses on Christ. Now, we'll get to the answer that I was talking about shortly, but first I want us to consider where we've been in this study thus far, so we'll have the, the context uh, as we consider how we put these assignments into action. First and most importantly, we've seen that every aspect of our calling begins in him and begins with him. His own character is the basis for all that he requires of us. I love the the reason I asked Al to do that hymn that we'd already done earlier is because as we were singing it in the worship, Jesus, I am trusting, resting in the joy of who you are. That's what this is about, of who you are. God in Christ loves us because God is love. He has known a perfection of love from eternity past. Within the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity, 
And as we saw in John 17, He has seen fit to draw us who have believed in Jesus Christ into that relationship of eternal love. It's incomprehensible to us that He would do such a thing, but that's what Jesus says God has done. By the way, I meant to flash this at at you guys a few weeks ago. I highly recommend this book, The Deep Things of God, Fred Sanders. I'm not big on on books. Honestly, I've spent more time in the Bible than in all other books combined, and that I intend to keep up that pattern. But that book is absolutely worth uh, worth reading. And so Ron may have to get a few extra copies. He handed it to my wife when we were just about to do the Trinity, when I was about to do the Trinity study. And this thing blew my doors off. There's some great stuff in here from a guy who's been teaching about the Trinity for about 30 years. So God has drawn us who are believers into this relationship of eternal love. And by the way, He has forgiven us our sins because grace and compassion and mercy are intrinsic to his character. He does that which is in keeping with his character. And then when you consider the way that he demonstrated his love toward us, the way that he redeemed us, he did it in such a way that it involved the grievous punishment of his son in our place because holiness and justice and hatred of sin are also intrinsic to the character of God. In fact, the entirety of the character of God is both fulfilled and manifested in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, as His redeemed children, freed from the penalty and the power of sin and indwelled with the power of His Holy Spirit, He calls us to serve as we have been served. To serve, to forgive, and to love others just as Jesus Christ served and forgave and has loved us. We also saw that God's one and only standard of measure for keeping these assignments is himself. And this was mentioned uh, up in the junior high class this morning. Uh, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, Matthew 5.48. That's a tough standard. If it were up to us to meet that standard, it would be utterly impossible. But that's just fine because as we have seen, everything to which we are called originates in God and comes to us and through us because He has united us with His Son and it's His Son who's doing all the work. It's the Son and the Spirit doing all the work. Not only does God's marvelous assignment to us originate in His character, it is entirely and without exception empowered by His presence in us. As Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, there is no one good but God. So if God God commissions us to be instruments of good, He's the one who has to do the work. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and delivered himself up for me. It's him in us. Philippians 2.13 It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 1 Corinthians 1.30 
But by His doing, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's our righteousness. He's our wisdom. He's our holiness. He's our redemption. So we don't have anything to boast about. The life to which we are called involves us getting out of the way and letting him be who he is in us. And we'll talk about how we get out of the way in a minute. It's the same, the answer to that question, how do you get out of the way and let him do in you what he, what his nature does, is the same answer as we started, uh, started with. That is how, it's the answer to the same question. How do we do all of this that he's set before us? Now that in a nutshell is kind of where we've been over the last three weeks. But what will happen to you if you actually live this way? If you indeed do toward others as God in Christ has done toward you? Well, God's answer to that question may not be the one that you expected, and it's probably not the one you would prefer. His word makes it clear that if you live toward others as Christ has lived toward you, there will be people who will consider you a fool of the highest order. They will mock you just as they mock Jesus. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The fool passage. First Corinthians 1, and I'm not going to read all, all of the pertinent verses, but start at verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. And then verse 21, For since in the wisdom of the world, excuse me, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Just a few days ago, in response to something that a a professing believer posted about living for for the moment and, and, and basically living for oneself and finding freedom in that and finding life in that, I posted something f- fairly direct about either being a bond slave to sin or a bond servant of God. And a friend of this person wrote back and said, those are the, he said, don't listen to the haters. And he said, Those are just the ramblings of someone who is bored and looking for significance. What I had said, in reference to what I had said. And then he said, I might, before I post something like that, I might want to check with my audience to make sure that they're already sympathetic with, with my cause before thumping them with my favorite book, his words, because if I don't, I might drive them further away from the God that I say I represent. And then he thoughtfully said, you don't want that on your conscience. If you say the things that represent what God has said to us, you'll be considered a fool. Well, that's all right. I'm not worried. It's very important that we speak the truth in love. The in love part is infinitely important. But as you you can speak as lovingly as is possible for an instrument of God to speak, and people will still call you a fool, a hater, intolerant. And we got to be ready for that. 
Some will treat you very badly, just as they mistreated Jesus. In fact, you may lose your job. You may lose your reputation in your workplace. You may not be allowed to finish a college curriculum or a graduate curriculum. I've known of people who fit all of those categories because of their testimony of Jesus for Jesus Christ. You may be sued. I know a guy who who was sued for standing up for Christ. And uh, I asked him, you know, how are you dealing with all this? And he said, well, about all I got left is the shirt on my back. But he said, that's absolutely fine with me. Because the only thing that matters is that which glorifies Jesus Christ. That said a lot to me. Maybe even more painfully, someone whose response matters a whole lot to you, a friend, a co-worker, maybe your spouse, your child, your parent, your brother or sister, may respond to your acts of service, forgiveness, and love with resentment rather than kindness. Some will hurl accusations against you, maligning your character and your motives just as they did against Christ. They accused Jesus Christ of plotting to destroy the temple. They accused him of being an anarchist, disloyal to Caesar. They accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And then they crucified him for all the above. According to God's clear declaration, if you do toward others as Jesus Christ has done towards you, some will very actively hate you, just as they hated Jesus. Turn to John chapter 15 for a moment. hope I'm not sugarcoating this too much. John 15, verses 18 to 21. Starting at verse 18, John 15. If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. Jesus is the one speaking. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Because they do not know the one who sent me. It's important that we understand the forcefulness of what Jesus is saying here. Doing as Christ has done doesn't simply make you vulnerable to mistreatment. It guarantees you that you will be be persecuted because Jesus was persecuted. It's not a possibility. It's It's an absolute certainty. And beloved, the reason that some Christians don't ever seem to feel or realize persecution is because they are not doing toward others as Christ has done toward them. Now, let's go back to 1 Peter 2 and 3 for a moment because we'll see that that passage makes the same guarantee. It's not a guarantee that we might get excited about up front, but it's the same one. Again, this passage is all about submission. Submission ultimately to the will of God and the work of God through us, which means that we do a lot of submitting to other people. And in 1 Peter 2, let's start at verse 18. 
It says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously." Again, it's important to understand the forcefulness of Peter's words. He says in verse 21, you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? Look at the verse before. To suffer unjustly as a servant of others and to do so without complaint or fear. That's what you've been called for. Just as Christ suffered for you. You are not called to imitate Christ in some benign, undemanding, I'll do it when it's convenient and doesn't bother anyone kind of way. God calls you to give yourself up for others just as he gave himself up for you. And he promises you that as you do, you will share in his sufferings. Now you might say, wait a minute, that's not what I signed up for when I trusted Jesus as my Savior. That's okay. That's what God signed you up for. He didn't need to ask your permission. He bought you and He paid for you with the price of the blood of His only Son. He owns you and He gets to do with you whatever He desires. So who's taking care of you? I want to get down to an issue that either either cripples Christians or liberates them to be true bondservants of God, depending on how they respond. Since God guarantees that by truly following Christ, you will be hated, you will suffer unjustly as Christ suffered, then how can you know that you won't just be chewed up and spit out and become useless to God and everyone else? Are you supposed to just be oblivious to your own needs? Doesn't your well-being even matter to God? Are you, are you just a tool about, about which he cares nothing? Well, as with all things pertaining to the Christian life, the answer is found by looking at Christ. Back to the passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. You've been called for this, very purp- for this purpose, and we've already said that's suffering by serving without complaint, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That statement is so powerful, and yet it is so often missed. This is God's exceeding 
exceedingly important answer to the question, how is it that we actually do what we are called to do? How is it that we can be freed up to be all in with the assignment that God has given to us without any distraction or encumbrance or fear? At first glance, the assertion that Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, it looks like it's saying that when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't seek vengeance because he was leaving that to his father. He knew his father would get vengeance on his behalf against those who reviled them and nailed them to the cross. But you know what? We all nailed them to the cross. Jesus' purpose in going to the cross was not to seal our condemnation. We were already as condemned as we could possibly be. He went to the cross to pay in full the debt of our sin and to reconcile us to God. So what is it that Peter means when he says he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously? Well, the word judges can mean to render a judicial decision or verdict, but it also carries some other very interesting connotations, like to resolve or decree, to rule or govern. I believe the word judges here looks at the sovereign control of God over all events. And the righteousness spoken of here speaks of the perfection of everything that God decrees. That is, in the result that he brings about. When Peter says that Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, I believe he's saying that Jesus entrusted himself to the one who sovereignly, always sovereignly brings about a righteous and perfect result or resolution. He trusted his Father to accomplish great and eternal good through his sufferings. And that was sufficient for Christ, just as it must be sufficient for us. The same essential idea shows up in 1 Peter 4, if you just flip over a couple of chapters in verses 12 through 19, in which Peter is continuing to talk about what it means for us to share in the sufferings of Christ. And I'm, at the moment, I'm just going to read verse 19, and we'll go back later and look at some of the rest of that. But in verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls, their lives, to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You see the, how that fits with the previous idea? Trusting him who judges righteously? God always does what's right. He always does good things. He always does things that are in keeping with his perfect character. And look at what came of Jesus' own trust in the good purposes of his Father. Flip back for a second to chapter 2 and verses 24 and 25. Jesus trusted himself, entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. And verse 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. God did a very wonderful thing through Jesus' trust in him, and we were the beneficiaries for all eternity. And our assurance from God is the same as his promise to his own son that he will sovereignly work through our suffering for Jesus' sake to accomplish that which is eternally good, eternally right, and in, in fact, absolutely perfect. 
the outcome of our sufferings for those who persist in opposing God is that they will be the objects of God's eternal retribution. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. But the outcome of our suffering in the lives of those who are the chosen of God will be their salvation. In both cases, our suffering is used by God for His glory. But God doesn't stop at promising us that our sufferings will be of eternal value for His purposes. He also promises us that He will richly bless us in the process of using us as His instruments to glorify Himself. When I hear some Christian preachers say that we're not supposed to even care about our own well-being, I have to disagree. Because God has had quite a lot to say about His concern with our well-being. And I like Piper's book, Desiring God, because it kind of focuses on that whole idea that, that our good is in Him in all respects and in knowing Him and being used by Him. One of the reasons that I don't believe uh, it's contradictory to say that we should be, that, that, that our good has something to do with God's purposes and that that's okay for us to think about is because I don't think there's really any dichotomy between our good and God's glory. The character and the person of God are inseparable from his benefits. If you look at Psalm 103, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let all that is within me bless his holy name. His name, that's his character, that's who he is. And then the parallel statement is, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. His benefits just flow from his character, from who he is. So there's no dichotomy. God is a reward. What did God say to Abraham in Genesis 15.1? He said, I am your shield, your very great reward. In Psalm 16, David said, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. My heritage is beautiful to me. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And then at the end of that passage, he says, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forever. God is our life. He is our inheritance. He is everything to us. Many other passages say the same thing. We, <laughs> if we do that which God has, has assigned to us, we will be blessed beyond comprehension, even in the midst of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, one of the wonderful things about being a Christian is you learn that joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> joy exists even in the midst of sorrow. You cannot be robbed of your joy if, you're, if your eyes are upon Christ. That which glorifies God benefits his children marvelously. That's the way he set it up. Go back to 1 Peter 4. I'm skipping between, uh, kind of all around in chapters 2 through 4. Chapter 4, verses 12 and 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. You see, suffering is the normal Christian life. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that 
also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God promises that everything we do that fulfills his purposes brings about the greatest good for us in the process. You can't do better than that. Romans 8, 28 says, y'all know it, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And shortly before that verse, in Romans 8, 17, Paul said, we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. Now make no mistake, God calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow Jesus Christ, which means that we become partakers in his reproach and his sufferings. As with all things concerning the Christian life, we cannot really be living according to God's assignment if we're not reckoning with what God says that assignment is. His call to us is to be, as Orb says, all in. With the full knowledge that in doing so we are laying down our lives for Christ and we are laying down our lives for other people. But just as surely as the sacrifices that he requires of you are neither benign nor painless, so also the blessings that he promises to you exceed all measure and all comprehension. Look at his promise in Romans 8. Go over to this very familiar passage. You can never read this one too much. Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And look at how the idea of tribulation and suffering is in here. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's answer to how we become freed up from concern about ourselves so that we can give ourselves without reservation to loving, serving, and forgiving others is by trusting in His promises to us. Flip over two chapters to Romans 10. In verse 11, this was Paul, uh, Paul Johannan raised this in the worship this morning. 
The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed or put to shame. That passage gets cited a few times in the New Testament. And Paul is citing from Isaiah 28. Go over there for a minute. Isaiah chapter 28. If you find Psalms and Proverbs, just keep going to the right. Isaiah 28 and verse 16. This is a messianic passage. It's talking about Messiah, the cornerstone. It's a beautiful statement. Therefore, Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes will not be disturbed. Now, literally in the Hebrew, that phrase, will not be disturbed, means will not be in a hurry. And I love the picture here. Kyle and Dalich uh, translate it, whoever believes will not have to move. We know from numerous passages, and I'll come back to that, but we know from numerous passages that the cornerstone in the Old Testament prophets is Messiah. Psalm 118.22, Matthew 21.42, Mark 12.10, Acts 4.11, Ephesians 2.20, 1 Peter 2.6 and 7. You can listen to the MP3 if you want to write all those down. The, the point is the Bible talks over and over about the cornerstone, and that's Jesus. But look at the, the vividness of what Isaiah is saying here. It's just a beautiful thing. He says, The one who stands upon the foundation of which Christ himself is the cornerstone will be standing in such a firm place that he will never have a cause to move. He will never be in a hurry to rush from that place to some other place to find safety or security or provision. No matter what the threat, the one who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be disappointed. He will not be moved. He will be protected, provided for, and richly blessed. He will have no cause ever to look anywhere else for security, for protection, for peace in the midst of turmoil. He will be standing on the firmest ground that exists. That's what it means to say, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. This is the idea that Peter was getting about, getting at in chapter 3 of the passage that Tommy read back in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he talked about Sarah. Sarah's a very interesting character with a very interesting life. 1 Peter 3, 6 says, Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, there was certainly part of Sarah's life in which she was pretty easy to scare. But she's apparently learned a few things over time. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you think it was easy for Sarah to submit to Abraham? If you do, go back and read the story. God had a good reason for using this particular example. How easy was it for Sarah to go with Abraham after having trudged all the way from Mesopotamia up to Haran, north of Israel, or north of Palestine, Then she hooked up with Abraham, and he took her to Palestine, and then to Egypt, and then back to Palestine, and then to Gerar, and then back to Palestine. And in the process of all that shuffling around, when he was in Egypt, he handed her over to Pharaoh to become part of his harem to save his own skin. 
And then 20 years later, after she probably thought things were pretty well settled after they were in the land at Hebron and had their own place, then Abram once again went out of country to Gerar and he handed her over to Abimelech the same way he had handed her over to Pharaoh. And by the way, who protected Sarah in both of those situations? Her husband? Not by a long shot. Who protected her purity and her life? God. If she ever had any illusions about trusting her husband, he blew them right out, right out the window. I think she figured out at some point, or she did figure out at some point, that her dear hubby was not going to be the source of security for her. He was not going to be the one who would ensure her well-being. How do you and I actually become doers of God's assignment to obey Him, to love and serve and forgive others, as Jesus in 1 Peter 2 is said to have served and forgiven and loved us the same way he did. By believing God more than you believe yourself. You keep your eyes on Jesus Christ and you never ever put them on your situation. You never put them on another person and you never put them on yourself. You think that's too simple? A lot of people do. One of the most crippling things snares that Christians fall into is that they make righteousness more complicated than God says it is. For reasons of our own that are tied to our sin, we think that the solution to our problem has to be as complicated as the problem itself. And that's not the way it works in the economy of God. God gives us a dirt simple solution. Believe me more than you believe yourself. And we say, it can't be that simple. So we cloud up his promises until they mean nothing to us in practice. But here's the reality in which you and I live. Are you ready? The solution to your problems is exactly, precisely as simple as God says it is. Without exception. There is no time that we can look at the promises of God and say, yeah, but... You're missing something here. See, the reason many Christians conclude that God's promises don't work is because they believe themselves more than they believe God. They spend their lives replacing God's simple, revolutionary, profoundly practical truth with their own cheap, pathetic imitation of truth, an imitation that they can't even begin to pin down because it's so convoluted and confusing that it aligns perfectly with their sin instead of with the righteousness of God. And some of you say, sure, this forgiveness and forbearance thing is okay up to a point, but you don't know what I have to put up with. You don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. You don't know my mother or my father or my child. So then you, you build up this monstrosity of reason upon pathetic reason why you can't be expected to treat others the way Jesus Christ has treated you. And I'm talking to myself here too. The catastrophically false assumption behind that pattern of life is the assumption that God is missing something. That you have a better grasp of things here on the ground where real life is. But you don't. Christ is your life. 
you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We never will have a clue about what it means for us to be blessed. God's the one who knows. He's the one who knows that. We don't. Now, I'm just about done, but I want to talk about a few obstacles to believing God more than you believe yourself. First, we've already raised it, thinking that the solution has to be as complex as the problem. Let's, we'll consider that one talked about. Thinking that you know more about blessing than God. God defines blessing. Blessing is our relationship with God. That's, that's where we find it. There's no other place to find it. If we're looking around somewhere else, we're never going to, we're never going to find the blessing that we seek. A third thing, confusing your assignment with God's assignment. This is a big one. I'll say again what I said in the first message of this series. It is absolutely imperative that you sort out whose assignment belongs to whom. God will never make it your assignment to change another person's heart or behavior. And if you set about trying to do so, you're doing his job. And you don't, you, you won't be able to do it. You make a really poor Holy Spirit. I can guarantee you that. Your assignment is to submit to the work that God is doing to change your heart and your behavior. Trust God with the other person in every relationship and every circumstance. Focus on the assignment God has given you, not the assignment he's given to the other person. That's his problem. This all comes back, again, to faith, simple trust in God. There's no way to set aside your concern about how someone else's actions and decisions affect you unless you are trusting God to do faithfully exactly as he promises, to control the outcome of that other person's actions as well as your actions in order to accomplish his perfect purposes that always result in your, your blessing. <laughs> That's the way it works out in the plan of God. Trust him. He's the one who will make your path straight. He'll take you where he wants you to be. He'll work good out of everything that happens to you. So how can you submit yourself to someone whose judgment you know is flawed? It's very, very simple. Believe that God is greater than that person. He's the one who's taking care of you. Fourth point that uh, sometimes sidetracks us, confusing instruments with the source. People will never, ever be your source of blessing. They may be instruments that God uses to bless you, but they will never be the source. Not your husband, not your wife, most definitely not your children. If you are depending on your children to be the source of blessing to you, you're going to mess some things up badly. Not your friends. There is only one source. James 1.17, Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The only one who can give you truly good things cannot be stopped, cannot be sidetracked, cannot be dissuaded from giving you good things. So what do we have to worry about? Losing sight of his promises is, is the fifth distraction. I call it mental laziness or passive versus active mindset. Romans 10:17 Faith comes from hearing and the hearing by the and hearing by the word of Christ or concerning Christ. 
It's very, very easy to lose sight of the promises of God if you're not exposed to them because the world lies to you 24-7 and wants to replace God's promises with a bunch of nonsense. So you have to be in God's Word. That's not complicated. It may require a little discipline, but it's not complicated. You have to be in His Word. From there, God, God takes over. His Word will not return to Him void without accomplishing the purpose for which He sent it. So if you don't want to be conformed to the world, you have to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. You have to be in his word. Last uh, point of uh, uh, as far as obstacles, believe uh, is when you believe yourself more than you believe God. That's the ultimate obstacle, and, and that ties right back to what we're talking about. All six of those things, by the way, are solved with one fundamental principle. Just believe God more than you believe you. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Let that be your focus, and you will be powerfully used by God to change forever the lives of other people. Do you believe God's promises? If you do, then stop looking for something else. Trust him more than you trust your own eyes. Trust him more than you trust your own feelings. Trust him to know what you need far better than you ever will. Trust him more than you trust your own plans. Trust him to be greater than the lapses of your own judgment. Trust him to be greater than the mistakes that you've made with your children or that you will make in the future. Trust him to be greater than others' lapses of judgment in their dealings with you. And lastly, trust him to equip and empower you to do everything that he fills your hands to do. Ephesians 1, 3, and Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Bless, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That same one who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Loving Father, we thank you. We thank you for the amazing realization that everything that you assign to us comes from you. It's all about you, your character, your nature worked out in us. The very notion that your righteousness has been given to us is something that just blows us away. But Father, we recognize that in your divine genius and and amazing mercy and compassion, Just as you've chosen to use us as your instruments, you have promised to bless us beyond measure. Teach us, Father, teach us what it means to truly keep our eyes upon our Savior and our Master. This is not a minor thing, Father. I don't know why this is so elusive for us, but I do know that it's simple. I know that it's very, very straightforward. And Father, I know that you've given us an assignment that we don't have to look around to figure out. We just have to trust you 
to fulfill it in us. Teach us to do that, Father. We ask this most earnestly. Teach us to do it, to believe you more than we believe ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.